know this song. We're going to sing it, though. You may have trod this world's way, sought to find your need. That which you found did not satisfy. Try Jesus, man of Galilee. Try the man of Galilee. <clears throat> Try him. Try Jesus. Love lasts like pure gold. A friend who ne'er grows old. Try Jesus, man of Galilee. When all your plans are failing, naught but night you see, turn to the one who died in your stead, to Jesus, man of Galilee. Try the man of Galilee. Try him. Try Jesus. Love that's like pure gold. A friend who ne'er grows old. Try Jesus, man of Galilee. He gave his life to save you, came to set you free. If you will take him, you will have life. Try Jesus, man of Galilee. Try the man of Galilee. Try him. Try Jesus. Love that's like pure gold. A friend who ne'er grows old. Try Jesus, man of Galilee. Vance and Thelma, that was an absolute pleasure, wasn't it? If you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 12, John chapter 12. Good to be back in the Gospel of John. I'm going to try something a little bit different tonight uh, and have a little discussion time uh, with this. And so I, you know, sometimes I ask, uh, what do they call that? Not redundant, uh, rhetorical questions. 
that you you know the preacher asks, but you're not really supposed to answer, and um, and, uh, and and so hopefully that won't catch you off guard. If I ask you a question and I kind of pause and look at you funny, that means maybe give us a little feedback. And uh, somebody uh, I was meeting with some folks, and they they thought maybe we could give this a try and have a little one on or a little uh, um, coming back and forth. That's what I'm trying to say. Pardon my. Uh, Umming so much. Anyway, well, anyway, uh, we're, we're coming to a part of a of scripture uh, here in John chapter twelve, and really we're coming to an end of a section in this gospel of John. Starting in John chapter thirteen, Jesus begins uh, kind of the end period of his life. Uh, we've taken obviously a lot of time to go through chapters one through twelve. I know some of you have been marking it perhaps date wise, and. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going anywhere, so I thought it would be fine just to take our sweet time. Uh, but John chapter 13 really begins a section that most of you are very familiar with, and so some of it we may go a little faster through. Uh, you've probably heard the foot washing preached a number of times, I'm guessing. And, and I know I've preached John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35 in this church at least once. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite, I, I got to stop saying that, don't I? It's probably one of my favorite pieces of scripture, but tonight, what we're looking at tonight is, it's one of those scriptures in the Bible that kind of, they, it kind of, uh, there's, there's two sides to me. There's a part of me that wants to kind of skip over it, because it's kind of, it's kind of a tough scripture, and then there's a part of me that says, no, you need to preach it, and obviously I'm going with the latter. I've entitled this message, The Truth of the Gospel, because it is the true aspect of the gospel that often goes unpreached. And that aspect is that even though the cause of Christ was driven by the love of God for the world, the gospel also purposely drew a very definitive line in the sand that says, believe and you will be saved, reject and you will be lost. The last time we were in the gospel of John was December 17th and we, we looked at chapter 12 and we looked at how Christ was this light that revealed God, that uh, revealed God to the world and broke people out of their darkness into the light. But I did not cover a very interesting aspect of verse 36, and some of you may have noticed it, but verse 36 ends with this statement. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And what's really interesting about that is we have no idea where he went. We have no idea how long he went there. John, the gospel writer, doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't tell us. God did not inspire anybody to tell us. Uh, but he left, and he was not able to be found. We don't know how, how long. And then he shows back up, and, uh, or, or we'll say it like this. John, the gospel writer, is inspired in verse 44 to write something that Jesus cried out. I'm not sure chronologically where that goes, but uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Well, let's read this text. We're going to look at verse 37 all the way through verse 50 this evening. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That sounds familiar. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things I say is said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 42, 
Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Let's pause a moment for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you that it is inspired word and you have something to say to us this evening through it. Father, I pray that you would get me out of the way, that you would speak to all of us and change us from the inside out because of your word and because of your presence in this place. It's your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. And so looking, this is really kind of two sections combined together, verses 37 through 43, the Apostle John gives us some insight to a very sad side of the truth of the gospel. And these verses actually give us a link back to Christmas. Uh, a couple of times this past month, or back in the month of December, I should say, uh, I talked about a guy named Simeon. This man uh, had, was, was a man of God who God had promised him he would not see death before he saw the Christ. That, that story is found in Luke chapter 2. I know I quoted that a couple of times with you all. And when he finally sees baby Jesus, he gives this prophecy. He talks about Gentiles, but he also talks about the Jews. Here's what he says about the Jews, and this is in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 through 35. And uh, Just write that down if you're taking notes. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, he's talking to Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, peace on earth, goodwill to men, is actually going to have some sadness to it as well. It's not all happiness and rainbows and puppy dogs and unicorns, as my daughter likes to say. The truth in many hearts will be revealed. Jesus will be opposed Many will rise because of him, and many will fall. And a sword will go through Mary's heart. I believe that's a, a prophecy of the, of the spear that pierces Jesus. I mean, what mother would not feel that same piercing while she saw her son being pierced? Many would fall because of Jesus. And that's the sad part of this text we've just read. And we might ask, why do we have to have this sad news? Why do we have to have... Uh, that there will be unbelief. God inspires these sad things to be written down for a couple of purposes. The first one is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. John connects what has happened, the rejection of Jesus, with two different pieces of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. In verse 38, when he quotes from Isaiah, he is actually quoting from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the text that describes this suffering servant that is to come, that God will send to Israel. Then in verse 40, what, uh, John, the gospel, what the gospel writer John 
quotes there from Isaiah is from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is this beautiful vision that Isaiah has as God is calling him into this uh, calling of a, of a prophet. And he is supposed to go forth and tell what he has seen. And it's this vision of, of the purity of God, of these angels and seraphims and, and cherubims and all of, the, all of this different stuff. And, and, and that's what he says that none would be able to believe. And these are connected from the Gospel of John back to the, the book of Isaiah. They would not believe because God would blind them and harden their hearts and they would not repent and turn to Him. And so these two thoughts have to be fulfilled in order for the identity of the Christ to be matched to the Old Testament prophecies. Keep your mind kind of back in there about this prophecy. We're going to come back to this in just a second. The second reason this sad word has to be here is because the sadness always brings the gladness. Uh, there, there's something to us hearing of the bad news and then hearing the good news. Dark things in the Bible are spoken for the sake of the light. The ugly things remind us of the beautiful. Uh, if we did not have the scripture of hell, the scripture of heaven would not be so glorious. The painful things of life remind us of God's comfort for us. Conflict is foretold that we will face it for the sake of understanding that the peace also will come. Remember, Jesus tells us in John 16.33, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We must be reminded of the sadness of the trouble that we will face in this world so that we can be of good cheer over how Christ has overcome the world. And then in verse 44, Jesus comes back, if you will. Again, I don't know where in time this falls. I don't know if he was gone and then suddenly shows back up. Because what we really see in these verses 44 through 50 is a bookmark or a bookend. That's how I really should say. It's a summary statement of what, what Jesus has been teaching from the beginning of his ministry. If you look at that verses 44 through 50, Jesus makes this statement, and I call it a summary because it summaries what belief in Jesus causes. That is salvation and judgment. It might also be called a summary statement because at this point, like I said, the public ministry of Jesus is coming to an end here in the Gospel of John. It's, I mean, I don't mean to say that he's never going to be seen in the public eye again, but his time of preaching and teaching and working miraculous signs for the sake of the unbelieving public, is going to be over. From this point forward, it's all about the intimate interaction between he and his disciples. It's about his, uh, his last supper. It's about his arrest, his time in the garden, then his arrest, those, uh, those trials, his facing the time with Pilate, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then these last intimate moments with his disciples again. That's what the rest of the Gospel of John is about. Here, though, we're seeing an end. This is it. This is the end of his public preaching and teaching uh, to those that are unbelieving. After this, he no longer does this. Let's see this summary. Looking back at this, verse 44 echoes what Jesus has been teaching from the beginning, right? He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. From the beginning, he has been talking about how he does not do anything without the Father telling him to do it. 
This is the central message of the gospel and to our Christian faith. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you don't have God as your Father. You cannot have one without the other. Jesus and the Father are one. And so what we do with Jesus reflects our relationship with God the Father. Such an important message for the Jews because they separate Christianity and Judaism. We even separate the two. But here, right here, we really see what actually happens is this is just the continuation of those Old Testament beliefs. Paul didn't believe that Christianity was a new thing, but it was a continuation of what they had already believed from the Old Testament. You cannot have one without the other. And that's what what Christ is summing up here for us. Verse 46, again, it's a repetition. I have come as a light into the world. How often have we heard him talking about being a light? In chapter 1, verse 8, John the Baptist says that he had come to testify about the light. That is Jesus. He brings the light into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it, he says in chapter 1. Everyone who believes in him moves from darkness to light. That's all chapter 1. Darkness isn't just about being in dark, the literal dark. By the way, remember, darkness is about evil, about sin, about death. And Then we come to verses 47 and 50. We know Jesus, and we know the Father, and we are saved, and we are have eternal life through the words of Jesus because they are the very words of God and they have the unique divine power to bring Jesus himself to the human soul. That's essentially what he is bookending his teaching with. Listen, believe in me, believe in me, and the very power of God will come into you. And With that, his public ministry comes to an end. His teaching to the unsaved masses comes to an end. But this is everything they need. And it's everything that we need to know how to have eternal life. The words of Jesus, the words of God the Father. This is how we know Jesus, how we know God the Father. This is how we receive eternal life. This is how we have reconciliation with God. This is how we have fellowship with Him and with one another through Him. I mean, praise the Lord. Jesus knew that the Father's command was for everlasting life. He knew this was the Father's command was for everlasting life. And if we know Jesus, we know the Father, and we also know this command of everlasting life. Praise the Lord for that. We can know exactly what Jesus knew, the Father's command for everlasting life, for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness. We can know this too. There doesn't need to be a shadow of doubt about our salvation or about our relationship with God. Believe and you will be saved. That's good news. But then we look back at verse 37 through 43, and we are left with that sadness again, and we wonder, at least I wonder, why would they not believe? And that's really... That's really what tears me up. Why would they not believe? They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. Why would they not believe? And then we think about the words of Simeon again. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. When we first started in John, John chapter 1 verse 11, the ministry of Jesus begins with this statement. He came to his own and his own people accepted him, right? 
No. Verse 11 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. That's chapter 1, verse 11. That's how the public ministry of Jesus began. It's only fitting that the public ministry of Jesus ends with this same statement, and many would not believe. And many would reject Him. The same thought is there. The truth of the gospel will be preached. The people will see miraculous signs, yet they will not believe. They will reject Jesus. Why? Why will they reject Jesus? Is it because of the lack of the power of the gospel? Let us not even begin to think that. Let us not even, not, not even mention that again, that it's because of a, a lack of power of the gospel. But I submit to you that this was all done that this rejection of Jesus by the Israelites was all done by the providential planning of God. Them rejecting Jesus was exactly how He planned things out. Because it was through the rejection of Christ that He was sent to the cross, and through His being sent to the cross, the way of salvation and the payment of my sins was made possible. My salvation is owed to the unbelief of the Israelites who not only did not receive him, not only, did not, re uh, not only rejected him, but then sent him to the cross to be crucified. My salvation is owed to that. Your salvation is owed to that. We must remember that none of what happened to Jesus Christ was an accident. The very reason Jesus came into the world was to die for our sins to die in the place of sinners, to be the ultimate payment for our sin. The unbelief of Israel, that is the rejection and murder of Jesus by His own people, was the path that God not only used, but planned for Him so that He would die in our place and make salvation possible for the whole world. So is this scripture of unbelief in verses 37 through 43 sad? Yes, absolutely. But let it, rem let it remind us of how Jesus came to be nailed to the cross for our sins and ultimately bring joy to our hearts. It was all a part of God's plans. With that in mind, I want to make a couple of observations about this sad, sad news. The first one is this. God planned their unbelief. That's hard. Look back at verses 37 through 43. Verses 37 through 43 of chapter 12. It says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. That, verse 38, and that word right there, begins the first inclination that this was a plan of God. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Remember I said, that sad stuff had to happen to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Which he spoke, there it goes, Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Then it goes on in verse 39. Therefore, here begins the next statement of, in, of, of understanding that this was planned by God. Therefore, they could not believe. Then and again, in, in the next, this next line is another incl uh, inclination that this was planned got by God. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again. What does he say? He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. 
who blinded the eyes? God did, right? Now, when you think about blindness, we think of literal blindness, right? I can, I can no longer see what's in front of me. But we all understand, of course, that this is a spiritual metaphor for spiritual blindness. What were they spiritually blinded to? That's, a, that's not rhetorical. What were they spiritually blinded to? What do y'all think? Yes, sir. Okay, you can say the power of God. Who was the power of God? Jesus being the Messiah. That's what they were blinded to, right? That's what they could not see. Then he says, who hardened their hearts? Who hardened their hearts? Now, that's kind of rhetorical, right? I mean, obviously, if you answer the first one, you know the second one's going to be God as well, right? Hardened their hearts. And this idea of hardening hearts is, is this idea, it's, it's that we cannot receive. It says they cannot understand, they cannot receive, they cannot believe, they cannot make a commitment of faith and belief. He goes on in this scripture and says, verse 40, lest... This, is a, this begins a phrase that gives us inclination that this was planned by God. Lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. Meaning to turn from their sinful ways. God blinded them and hardened their hearts lest they should see, lest they should understand and be able to turn and be healed from their sinfulness. God planned their unbelief. And this cannot be disputed. That's sad. Number two, Israel is guilty for their unbelief. While God planned their unbelief, Israel is guilty for their unbelief. Israel is responsible for what they believe or what they reject. They are responsible for still rejecting Jesus to the, this day. And they are also guilty for murdering Him. God's planning of their unbelief and blindness and hard-heartedness does not remove their guilt. Uh, do you remember the meeting with Nicodemus that Jesus had in John chapter 3? We spent, I believe, a couple of weeks on that. There are some very famous verses in that meeting. Of course, John 3.16, we know and love John 3.16. God so loved the world. Such a lovely verse, such a lovely reminder that God loves us. He sent His Son. But there's some important verses that follow verse 16. Here's what Jesus says in the next two verses. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Here comes verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's verse 18. And that follows up verse 16. God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 18, if you don't believe, you will perish. And that's it. The unbelief of Israel is their guilt. Likewise, the unbelief of modern man in 27... 2018 <laughs> is also our responsibility. Man being responsible for believing in Jesus Christ and God's sovereignty for determining 
who will believe in Jesus Christ are not exclusive. They work together, and they are both true, whether we understand it or not. And I'll be the first to admit to you, I don't understand that. I can only tell you what the Bible teaches. God planned their unbelief. God used their unbelief. They're responsible for their unbelief. Number three thought, how Israel, how was Israel blinded and hardened? If you remember, I told you that Isaiah 53 is what is quoted here in verse 38. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom? No, that's not right. I said the, yeah, that's right. Verse 38. That's a, that's, a, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. It's about the coming of the Christ, also known as the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, it describes this lowly servant who will suffer for others. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3, states this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. We've heard that description about Jesus before. Sure enough, Jesus was not the Messiah that the, that the Israelites were looking for. He wasn't even the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a mighty, conquering hero. They wanted a king with majesty and glory. But Jesus, what does 50, uh, Isaiah 53 say? He had no form or beauty that they would be drawn to him. When you reject someone based on their looks, what, what is your reasoning for rejecting them? What would you call that? When you reject someone on, based purely on their looks. Prejudice? They don't look like me. They don't look like what I want them to look like. Is there any pride in that? That's, that's kind of what I see, is that it's a little bit of pride. And so when we say that God hardened and blinded Israel to the reality of who Christ was, it was not literally that they were blinded. We understand that. It wasn't that they could not see. But instead, he allowed the pride or the prejudice of their hearts to blind them and harden them. You get that? They weren't blinded and hardened in the sense that God just said, okay, I'm just not even going to reveal to them who this guy is. But instead, he sent a Messiah that would look like someone they didn't want to have anything to do with that they would reject based on appearance alone. He sent the Messiah he knew they would be sure to miss, and not only miss, but reject, because he knew that men look at the outward appearance. And we know God knows this too. The truth is, is that Jesus had great glory and great majesty. It just was internal, not external. And they could not see through their own prejudiced eyes. And their prejudice, their pride, led them to not even explore the glimmer of belief they might have had. And I, I say that because of what verses 42 and 43 say. Did y'all catch that? Let me just read that again for emphasis. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, that means the spiritual religious leaders, many believed in Him, being Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. What does verse 43 say? For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That is a scary, scary thought. Now, I don't know if they had authentic saving faith. I'm not the judge, and I cannot make that, that judgment. 
but it just speaks to prideful conditions of their hearts. It, it seems to convey this idea that there were some who actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the promised Savior of the world, promised by Isaiah, promised by uh, 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 centuries of law, of Mosaic law, this promised one that they've long awaited. They actually had a glimpse of belief that that's who Jesus was. But they were unwilling to express this belief. Why? Because they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. They loved the praise of man. That is the worship. That is the glory that mankind would give them more than the praise of God. And God knew this about them, and He used this understanding to send them what they needed, but they did not want. Oh, He sent them what they needed, but He sent them what they did not want. A suffering servant, meek and mild and humble. I mean, essentially what the Scriptures lead me to believe is that Jesus was not a very good-looking guy, and they rejected Him because of that. And while it may be hard to believe in this sad truth, in this sad truth of Israel's rejection of Jesus, there is good news, isn't there? Let me read this scripture from Isaiah chapter 53 for you. Just listen to what Isaiah has to say about Jesus. You've probably heard this before. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Our peace, our healing, my healing, our forgiveness, all of this was made possible because God chose to send a Savior that He knew would be rejected and ultimately murdered by His own people. Consider this fantastic truth. God planned all of this for our salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this fantastic truth. A truth that for some it's hard to believe. For others, it's even harder for us to proclaim that you, you planned all of this. Yes, Jesus was murdered, but you even planned that. Jesus said, no one takes his life, but he willfully offers it. God, if nothing else, let us just respond with thanksgiving all the days of our life. And let that thanksgiving sometimes come out that we are sharing that good news with other people. How important it is that we not keep this good news to ourselves, but that we share it with others. Can I tell you what God planned just for you? And it's in your name I pray this, Jesus. Amen.